My friends, my neighbors, my online family, we're coming at you from the Holy City. It is the Paul Leslie Hour. And on this episode, Paul will be sitting down with Kobe Glass, a professional Charleston, South Carolina tour guide. Now, Kobe Glass has a great knowledge of Charleston and also one of the most storied beverages in all of human history, beer. Here are some credentials of Mr. Kobe Glass. He's a certified Cicerone, a licensed Charleston tour guide, a Palmetto Guild member, and a consumer psychologist. More simply, as Kobe commonly puts it, he's loving life as always. Help keep the Paul Leslie Hour coming at you. It's easy. Just go to www.thepaulleslie.com slash support. And we thank you. Now let's go to the Tavern at Rainbow Row on 120 East Bay Street, Charleston, South Carolina. I want to meet this Kobe Glass. All right. Go, guys. Welcome to Charleston, Paul. Kobe Glass, it's a pleasure. Well, folks, we are coming live from the Tavern at Rainbow Row. This is the Paul Leslie Hour. We are joined by none other than Kobe Glass. One review proclaimed him as, and I'm quoting here, the best tour guide ever. More on that in just a moment. I want to first of all say thank you to the Tavern at Rainbow Row. This is the oldest provider of wine and spirits in the country since... 1686. So we are coming at you from a one-of-a-kind historical venue at 120 East Bay Street in Charleston. Thank you so much. Kobe Glass is joining me for a freewheeling interview. A history and pub tour guide. He is the man behind Charleston Brews Cruise. We're going to go into a number of topics. Charleston, of course, one of the most widely consumed beverages in the world. We will be talking about that. I'm, of course, I'm talking about beer. And some history, and of course, Kobe Glass, the man himself. So I can't resist saying uh, this. Thank you. I'm listening. Raise your glass to Kobe Glass. Ah, thank you, Paul. Thank you. Thanks for doing this. Oh, I've been looking forward to it for a couple of weeks. Uh, Charleston's uh, lucky enough to have Paul Leslie move here about a month ago. We have a common friend, and uh, he introduced me to Paul, and Paul uh, has given me the privilege to be here on the show, so I appreciate that, Paul, and uh, helping to show Paul and his lovely wife, Karina, a little bit of our uh, city. Uh, Charleston's the city I came to six years ago from Atlanta, Georgia, and I've been in the beer business 31 years, give or take, and the company that brought me out here got bought out a year into it. My daughters and my friends back in Atlanta are like, so you're coming back to Atlanta? I'm like, no, I'm good. Have you seen this place? It's beautiful. <laughs> so I have decided to stay in Charleston, as most people do if they come here. It is a uh, very unique, very beautiful, very historic little corner of our world. There is nothing like it, that's for sure. And uh, you did go a long way into making me feel welcome. This is the first in-person interview that I'm doing since my relocation. So I'm glad it could be you. Well, this is the place that uh, Paul asked me, where would you like to do the interview if we do a video interview? I'm like, I don't know what second place would be, but I know what first is. And that is Tavern at Rainbow Road. This place 
to me, if you haven't visited here, you haven't really done Charleston properly yet. Uh, back in 1685, there were British shipwrights stationed here for two years. Well, they had to stay on their ship. The Navy didn't give them a place to stay in the city and the ship. So they built four residences above four businesses. So when they got done with their internship, they could remain in Charleston. Mm. Charlestown at the time, two words, before the revolution. Well, two of those businesses ended up being what were at the time the Pink Tavern. That was at the far end. That allowed ladies in the Shipwrights Tavern here at this end, men only, remains that way for over 200 years until 1902 when the sheriff comes by complaining about the drunkenness and the debauchery, but more importantly, not making enough money in his taxes. So he has not converted to a flagon shop. Basically, you'd bring your vessels with you, have them weighed, filled, weighed, paid by weight, potable liquids for your ships. We were right on the water. Mm. Well, during Prohibition, gets licensed as a barber shop. Barbers did outpatient surgery, as we would call it now. If you had something growing on your face or growing on your butt cheek, you'd go to the barber and they'd lop it off. You know, that's what the red means on the red and white poles. Oh. Plus, they had hair tonic, primarily gin and white rum. So you could go to the barber and get your alcohol, pints and half pints, medicinal, of course. After Prohibition, it gets relicensed as a liquor store and has remained that way since. And now the tavern here adjacent in the same building this would be the second and third parts of the uh, original row, which means this building and this license has been continuously selling licensed alcohol since 1686, making it by far the oldest licensed alcohol establishment in North America. And it ain't even close. <laughs> and folks, you really have to check it out. I mean, you can see a little bit of the ambience here in this video interview, but when you come here, you really feel, I think, the the spirit of all the people, no pun intended, that that came before. It's a good pun. <laughs> I, I didn't mean to do that, I swear. I'm usually not very punny. But um, so tell us a little bit about more of your backstory. You're from Atlanta originally? Yeah, I am born and raised in Atlanta, third generation, which is rare for Atlanta for any of those who are there. I grew up with more people when I was growing up in the uh, basically the 80s that were from upstate New York, Ohio, Michigan, the big three at the time, you'd meet literally more of any one of those places individually than you would from Atlanta, especially in these suburbs. I grew up in Cobb County, Georgia. So it was a very generic wonder bread suburbia for the most part. Upper. My father was Lockheed, very different siblings, you know, uh, growing up in the exact same household. But I was very fortunate at, a, at the University of Georgia, a guy named Bill Oden. Bill Loden introduced me to two things, good beer and Jimmy Buffett music. <laughs> and Bill Loden, if you're out there somewhere in Minnesota, get in touch with me. I, I owe you a beer. <laughs> um, there's about 19,000 Bill Odens in Minnesota. That's the problem. Mm. But the one that was at University of Georgia in 1982, he was an upperclassman. I was just lucky to be in the room at the time. But he introduced me. Um, at the time, it was the beer nobody wanted to drink. It was mm. a San Miguel Dark. But... Because I was the freshman and it wasn't even cold. It was kind of like eating a bug. But I drank it just to show everybody, you know, because guys are stupid. You think if you do something stupid, you get the respect because that's the way we think. We're not that bright. Right. But that's what I did at the time. But I drank this beer that was supposed to be god-awful and it was awesome. Turns out it was really good at room temperature. I got lucky. But two months later, when I turned 19, drinking age at the time because I'm old, uh, we, uh, I went out and looked for beers like that. And that was one of those epiphany moments. But I ended up, thankfully, in a career of beer. 
once I got started, uh, everything from a, um, a, <laughs> I, I giggle a little bit, a uh, little late night, we, we ended up doing an infomercial and I, I did an infomercial back in, uh, you know, the, uh, the early nineties, it's still floating out there somewhere. But the infomercial gets me hired in what we called microbreweries at the time and kind of work your way up. Anheuser-Busch a few times, uh, director of marketing, Heineken for the East Coast. Did a radio show in Atlanta for a while, which was fun, just on Saturdays. But the beer guys, it was kind of a Cigar Dave people uh, for those radio people listening out there. Uh, tried to do a beer version, and uh, but it was fun. But as I kept kind of getting better and better jobs as you know you want to do during your career right i ended up with the best job ever working for a company an importer managing southeast west indies and i thought i would retire from that job that job's great you know you have trips to europe and companies paying for everything it's the best beers in the world including uh you know this one right here by the way that's why we're drinking this cheers um then they hired an accountant that's never good And uh, realized that, you know, with the craft beer and all the changes that the business model for the high-end specialty import wasn't working. Put the shingle back out there. Unfortunately, I'm widowed and two daughters heading towards college. I couldn't, you know, at that point lose the money I was losing. Mm. So ended up uh, somebody out here in Charleston wanted my specific background set. Mm. And this is uh, is a little personal, but I I stuck with that job longer than I should. Mm. And money, when it hits, if any of you have ever been through this before, when it hits, it hits hard. Yeah. You know, when you're spending more than you're coming in, you go through your savings, you're stubborn because men are stubborn. And I hit, I hit hard. And I literally had to fess up, went to my men's group at church. And I, I, I laid it out there. And I cried, laid it out there. And A, it was amazing how many other men had been through it. And B, Within six days, I had a job, I had money in the bank, I had a place to go, and it ended up being Charleston. Hmm. And I named my daughters. My late wife and I decided she wasn't supposed to have kids, but if she could, she was going to get the first name, I was going to get the middle name if it was a girl. If it was a boy, other way around. Well, we were blessed with two girls, Rania Savannah and Zaria Amelia. Hmm. Savannah and Amelia, my choices for Savannah and Amelia Island. I love this coast, the Palmettos. The live oaks, the beyond, it's just the, you know, it's just, this is where my heart is. So when I end up in Charleston, it's just, I felt like this is where I'm supposed to be. This is just God stuff at that point. When you lay your heart out there to the men you trust the most, and in six days, everything's better. You know, I'm supposed to be here for you. And now, Paul, my job with all that that's going on is to take people I don't know out to bars, tell them stories and drink beer with them for a living. <laughs> and it's not a bad goal gig here in this little corner of the world. It's, it's truly amazing. You, you do have a very interesting life. I know you're a humble person in that you, whenever I say something, you always say, yeah, well, why do you want to interview me? But as you can see, folks, you know exactly why I'm interviewing Kobe Glass. Well, I am blessed to be around interesting things. So uh, Charleston right now being first and foremost. Charleston is just a gift that I was given six years ago because there's not another city like this. It's the only city in the United States that's English, colonial, and tropical. It's been the wealthiest city in America twice. Never the largest, but twice Hmm. it's been the wealthiest. We have over... I haven't told you this yet. I should make you guess. Okay. But um, how many buildings do we have that predate the American Revolution? Now, I'm going to give you... 
just to help you out. We've had six major fires. We are constantly flooded. We've had major hurricanes. They bypass the recessed coast of North Florida and Georgia, smack us right in the face. We're on the third strongest earthquake fault in North America, the Woodstock Fault, last major earthquake, 1886. And we're the only city in the United States that's ever been bombarded by a foreign government in a residential area. It's only happened twice, thankfully. Uh, most of our wars have been on foreign soil. But both times, Charleston. Once by the British, once by the United States. So with all that having happened, how many buildings do we have left that predate the American Revolution? Predating the American Revolution. Put the pressure on Paul right now. My first gut instinct, before you talked about all the different calamities, is I thought 100, but now I'm going to say 50. 50 is my answer. So you had 100 and you had 50. If you kind of combine those in a way, you'd be closer, because it's a little over 1,500. 1,500? Remaining buildings that predate the American Revolution. That is astonishing. Charleston is a kick-ass little obstinate daughter of a city. Yeah. When I say obstinate daughter, it is a female city. It's named after a guy named Charles in the colony of Carolina, which is also named after a guy named Charles's father. But we all know it's always been a female city, the obstinate daughter of yeah. our country. Stubborn, rich, just won't listen. That's Charleston. <laughs> well, that that's really, that's that's something else. When you first told me the San Miguel story about uh, at, at the University of Georgia, it blew my mind because I grew up in the Philippines, which I remember the San Miguel commercials. We both went to the University of Georgia. And you also said that the, the, you, you discovered Buffett through this same San Miguel beer. Same the, guy. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing that this one guy, um, he was the guy, not to throw Bill Oden under the bus, Bill, if you're out there. He was the guy who'd buy the underage guys, the, you know, beer, and do a beer runs for us. We could get eight Miller High Life, so little pony bottles. This one's when you finished it, you wanted to like whip it up against a wall somewhere. You know, he just had right. to throw it against something. You couldn't help it. Uh, but they were two dollars for eight of those. You know, again, I'm old. 1982. Well, I had worked the entire summer of 1982. Uh, Yellow Freight and Mama Winnett's West. You know, and that's back when country music was big at the time. And uh, I had made a lot of money that summer. I had I had enough money. Well, uh, when you're going to college and you work, you think it's a lot of money. I was broke by Christmas, right? So I had to get a job because my you know my family, not money to spare, certainly not enough for beer and shenanigans. So all that money I had to do myself. So I get a job. Well, if you have a job and come back to the dorms early, so I'd come back to the dorms early and. Uh, uh, because there's only a few people. It's the only reason I was in that room in the first place. But um, So that's how I got to know Bill, because he's the one who gave me the beer. But I was listening to a lot of David Allen Coe at the time. He had been uh, at that country music nightclub I'd worked in the summer. I got to do backstage. And one of the David Allen Coe songs was called Jimmy Buffett Doesn't Live in Key West Anymore. Right. And I was playing that song off that album, and Bill Oden heard it. It's like, do you ever even know, you know, so he played me some Jimmy Buffett. I'm like, I actually like that. Okay. Yeah. I didn't think I, you know, so, uh, so it was different and it appealed to me. So I went to uh Wuck street in Athens, Georgia, still there. I hope. <laughs> yes. And a record yes. store. And they had a Buffett album as a double album, but one of them was busted. So it was the, you had to be there album. And only the right. second, you know, other, you know, the vinyl, only one of them was in there, but that was mostly the Atlanta stuff. And once I started playing that, 
Yeah, I cut my ponytail, put away the rebel flag, and became a parrot head instead of a redneck. Yeah. <laughs> Fate. The redneck stage was short-lived. It, I, I wasn't good at it. You know, I, I, yeah, uh, but uh, I tried for a little bit. But I couldn't drink bourbon. First time I ever got like hungover. I had enough money for either food or liquor. You should choose food in that situation, <laughs> uh, I found out. So the first time I ever threw up, in the first, and I couldn't drink bourbon for like another 20 years. So. Uh-huh. But, um, yeah, it was a, uh, and that's what college is for. You know, the, the, theoretically, it's learning your future, what you do for a living, but really it's learning how to be an adult. And you do that through experiences. Yeah. It kind of, uh, it kind of, because I know a little bit about your musical interests, you know, you're a music fan, but it's, you know, if somebody starts with country music like David Allen Coe, and then they go into Buffett. The kind of stuff that you like, Ray Wiley Hubbard, Billy Joe Shaver, Red Dirt, this is the kind of guy that I would imagine that would result from that. And I like all those guys, too. You've interviewed most of them. Most of them, yes. You know, the ones that are alive and a couple of them that are no longer with us, but um, Billy Joe, for example. No, uh, once you listen to, once you understand some of that, you know, the, the Red Dirt music, mm-hmm. And the same company I worked for here, Austin, Texas. I remember going there the first time we did our quarterly meetings. And we had a little free time uh, in the evenings. And we had one of those uh, here in Charleston, it's the city paper. But every, you know, uh, creative loafing in Atlanta. Right. You know, most cities have that alternative newspaper or whatever they call it. Well, they have a lot of music. And I'm thumbing, you know, they have one sitting out there. And we have a little break. And I'm going through. I'm like, and I'm looking and I'm seeing people that it's like, they're playing at the local bar for you know a two dollar or two drink minimum. Right. Like I just paid seventy five dollars to see this, you know, <laughs> like a couple of months ago, and you know in Atlanta, and they're playing for a two drink minimum on a Wednesday night down the street in Austin, Texas. Yeah, I love Austin for that reason. Um, you can see everybody, and they they don't charge you much. You know, it's like they just they're practicing basically in char- in, uh, in Austin. So uh, it was a. Um, uh, yeah, and that's when I really got back into the red dirt music and the the lyrically driven. But red dirt music's what we used to call southern rock to a certain extent. You know, the Ronnie Van Zants and the people who could write lyrically, but you still write the song first. Hmm. You know, you have the music and how do I, you, once you get the music written, you write the lyrics to meet it. Or you have an ins- a lyrical inspiration, you write the music and vice versa. But that's the way all the good songs are written. Country music tends to be, here's the lyrics, and then we put music to it, whereas the Red Dirt, Southern Rock, other genres, other way around. Hmm. And uh, where the Trop Rock and Jimmy Buffett, that's a question you'll have to wait, you know, ask him. But uh, I still listen to a lot of Radio Margaritaville and just the stuff, especially here in Charleston, where... There's so much water. You're never more than five or ten minutes away from water. So it is, whether it's the marshes, the rivers, uh, and tidal rivers here, they change directions every six, six and a half hours. That blows people's minds. Mm. Uh, and, of course, we have you know, four beaches within roughly 20 minutes of the city. Kia was a little further out, but at least three beaches within 20 minutes of the city. So it is a, um, a good trop rock environment when you're thinking beaches, you know. That does influence your the music you listen to, no doubt. Absolutely. I'm going to catch up to you a little. Are you going to catch up? All right. We're going to take a little sip. We're both having 
I uh, trying to get Paul liquored up for the interview. <laughs> he doesn't realize this is eight and a half percent alcohol beer. <laughs> uh, I did. I did catch that. <laughs> this one might be a little difficult, given your passion for Charleston is is evident. What do you love most about Charleston, South Carolina? Actually, it's not as difficult as you would think because I like the uniqueness. I used to drive a '66 Suicide Door Lincoln convertible. I only paid ten grand for it, but people loved it because it was different. wasn't a, wasn't a hot rod, wasn't you know a, what it was, diff- and the difference is good. The shirt is different, you know, yeah. but different is good. Charleston, as I mentioned earlier, has a lot of things that make it different. It, uh, there's not another city in the United States like this. So much of our history has been erased, especially after the American Civil War, that people don't realize, you know, there were more soldiers in the Revolution from South Carolina than any other colony. More battles of the American Revolution were fought in South Carolina than any other colony. And again, information that gets erased generally after, you know, people now learn about the Revolution. They learn Boston and Concord and, you know, maybe a little bit of New York. Uh, and that's about it. They don't realize the role the wealthiest city in America leading up to the revolution. And our, uh, so when people come to Charleston and they see this European looking city mm-hmm. and they learn the history and they're like, why were, why have we been lied to our whole lives? We didn't know this existed. And it's especially funny if, you know, when it's winter time, because you get someone from, I don't know, let's say uh, East Lansing, Michigan, like my friend Alex, he comes down to Charleston and it's, you know, 45 degrees in the dead of winter. And he's like, really? This is winter? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've been lied to my whole life. I thought winter sucked. It's like winter, you, know, you have to find your jacket, maybe put on some thicker shorts here. You know, winters, <laughs> winters are great. Now, summer's hotter than fried hell, but still the most Charlesy thing I've ever heard, by the way. Uh, for those of you who are listening, I overheard a lady tell her husband once in a restaurant, honey, it's hot and fried hail out there. Let's have another drink. <laughs> Still the most Charleston-y thing I've ever heard. And the best description of our summers. July and August, hotter than fried hell. But otherwise, our, the winters are, are wonderful. Again, we dip down in the 40s sometimes. But that is what makes Charleston so wonderful to me is it is a very unique city. It's not Florida. It's not uh, the New England where you have the history that we have. You have the history of New England, the weather of Florida, the uh, uniqueness. You have the food. You have an incredible Gullah heritage that has fueled virtually all the food and the music and a tremendous amount of our heritage here. And when you get that all mixed together, you have a city that is unlike any other. So when you're doing your walking tours, you no doubt have been influenced both in the way you speak and also maybe in little comedic flourishes. Would you say that there are certain speakers or personalities that have influenced your tours? Oh. Or your overall speaking and and sense of humor? That's a good question. I'm going to go a weird direction here. Uh, Douglas Adams, uh, an author, my brother, uh, Jay Glass, introduced me to Douglas Adams, like high school or whatever. And he's kind of science fiction, but not really. He used science fiction, but it wasn't really the science fiction. It was the writing. It was the comedy. It was the humor. Uh, very Python-esque if you're a Monty Python person. But the silliness, and I've always enjoyed the silliness, is that ability to be silly and and just say 
say things uh, with proper English, but are inherently silly. And it's kind of an English sense of humor. Stephen Moffat, uh, one of my favorite writers, and some of my favorite TV shows, Coupling and Sherlock, he has a way of writing that is intricate, but humorous. In fact, my pub tour that I do, the historic pub tour, is based off Stephen Moffat, if he's out there, never met the guy. You know, he doesn't know who I am from Adam, but I base my tour off Sherlock, basically. You know, you start off with little things that don't seem relevant early, and then when you bring them back later in the theme of the, of the you know, the show, so to speak, the tour in my case, well, then people put the two and two together, and then like, oh, wait, that's what you said earlier. Now it's coming back to me. Oh, wow. And then they feel clever, and they enjoy themselves. You know, and that's what you want people to do, whether you're doing a radio interview or or you're doing a TV show or a tour, at the end of that, they want to feel like that was time very well spent. They want to be entertained, you know, or they want to learn. You know, you want to be learned. You want to uh, in- increase your knowledge. You want to sometimes, uh, some of the content can be heavy here, especially in Charleston with our history. Uh, you want to be enriched and be a better person. You know, there's a lot of ways that you can spend that time well. Learning Sometimes heavy things, sometimes interesting things, things that were kept from you during your education. But if you put an underlying humor and entertainment into that while you're doing it, you pay more attention. And uh, no, that's, that's an excellent question. Thank you, Paul. Yes, sir. Well, let's say somebody goes on the tour and it's maybe 30 minutes later and they're reuniting with someone who maybe didn't go on the tour, and they're telling them about it. What would you want them to say? Hey, I went on this tour, the Charleston Bruce Cruise. The tour guide was Kobe. He was wearing a hat. What do you want them to say? That's funny. What do I want them to say? You know, uh, now, the hat, by the way, is so you're recognized when you walk into the places. You want them right. to know. You want to be relatively consistent. Colorful shirt, wear a hat. My sister gave me this hat, by the way. Thank you, Vicky. My sure. favorite hat now. So, yeah, the hat is a whole different thing. But you all, you want to be a bit of a character. You know, as you, if you're a tour guide, you know, they want someone who knows what they're talking about. So you give them your credentials. But if you're a bit of a character, it makes it a little bit more fun. So that is a part of what we do, you know, as tour guys, educate ourselves, know what we're talking about as best as possible. You know, history is frequently inaccurate, but do the best we can on the history part, make it into a good story, be a bit of a character and entertained. And I forgot the original question. Oh, just what would they want to say about? Oh, say about me. Oh, my God. Uh, Or the tour. Well, uh, sometimes tours can go off the rails. You know, you get... I've had, I remember distinctly, I had two girls on the Charleston Brews cruise once. It was the happy hour, which is a two-stop. And this is a beer education tour. You go to craft breweries. You do four samples at each of the tours, or each of the craft breweries, sorry. And after the first stop, we're at the second stop, and they asked me, can we have something other than beer? And we don't really want stories. Well, that's, that's what they paid $60 each for. You know, they paid to drink beer and hear about beer and hear stories. So they're asking me for no, something. Well, they thought I was going to drive them around and buy their drinks for them. They had no idea what the tour was on. So sometimes you have to pivot. That was the worst. I, and I was, thankfully I had a friend of mine show up who kind of took over for me on that one. Cause I was like, I, you know, I can't help you on this one. But other than that one, I uh, generally, sometimes you have to pivot people. And the bottom line to actually answer your question, 
Bottom line, you want people to enjoy themselves. You want them to get to the end, similar to what I said, mentioned a moment ago, and you want them to feel like it was time very well spent. Hmm. You want to over-deliver, and you want to entertain them, educate them, whatever's important to them. Some people are very dry. They don't need the funny stuff. They just want the, you know, I don't do a lot of specific facts because I realized early on it goes in one ear out the other. Mm-hmm. You know, people don't remember it. Tell them the stories, paint the picture, use analogies, and then they remember, then they enjoy it. That's the bottom line. We had fun. We learned so, we had so much fun learning. There we go. Mm. Bottom line. We had fun learning. Now, do you perhaps have suitable for, for this video, <laughs> suitable for airplay, is there a little story that you may have for us? from your time as a tour guide, something that was amusing or interesting or touching or hilarious or crazy, whatever. I have my favorite moment. I got to condense this. I don't, I, yeah, we're, we're on radio and a little bit of TV. Hello, YouTube. So this is my condensed version. We obviously can't control unless you have a private tour. So when we have public tours, this was a bruise cruise. It was a, a day tour. And I had two parties. I had a two and I had a seven. Well, the seven, uh, I don't remember the name, but it was a younger name, younger generation name. It was uh, uh, Hannah or, you know, and usually it was seven all done by one person. That's usually a bachelorette party. We have, we're the drunken bachelorette party capital of the East Coast. Well, the other two, it was a, and again, I don't remember this specific name, but it was a name that has not been used for a couple of generations. Mm. Yeah, it was a name that was used more commonly that would generally imply a, a woman of uh, uh, of a certain age. And and I know better than show up too early for these because if it's an older couple, they're going to be early. They're going to be there a half hour early. Right. And they're going to be waiting on me. And they're going to be asking questions. They're going to ask all the questions I'm about to do when everybody gets there. So I know better than get there too early. So I show up five minutes before. And sure enough, there's an older couple sitting there on the bench. Now... The gentleman was a plumber from Cleveland, Ohio, oh. retired, according to him. I'm sorry, according to his wife, semi-retired, according to him. Uh, he wasn't ready to give it up. Now, this guy, if you were to do a sitcom of a plumber from Cleveland, you could not have used this guy because he was every stereotype in the book. He it was built like a fire plug. Oh, you know, he, he phrased everything in the form of a complaint. If you've ever known anyone from Cleveland, it's kind of how they talk. You know, he just was bitching about everything. Uh, even when he was happy, it sounded like he was bitching. You know, it was right. just the way he talked. So he's like, yeah, we got this thing. You know, both of us had to do a thing. You know, she said I had to do a thing. You know, she has a thing. I had a thing. I said, this is my thing. I have to, I have to do a thing. I'm like, she bought you a beer tour and you're bitching and <laughs> you're complaining about it. But he was happy enough. But I'm like, please don't be a bachelorette party. Please don't be a bachelorette party. You know? And then sure enough, here comes the bachelorette party. Now, not only is it a bachelorette party, these girls had been in like a service fraternity at their college. So they were all singing their their song. And uh, I know they're girls fraternity, but services are still called a fraternity, or at least most of them. And they had like feather boas and they represented every color of the rainbow and they were just having a good time singing their sorority slash fraternity song as they were walking down the bus barn there. And he's like, Oh my God, he was not happy. He's like, let's just go. He's like, this is going to be a pain in my ass. Um, 
His exact words. Now, evidently, he was not concerned about his wife's ass, but just his. Uh, this is going to be a pain in my ass. Let's just go. And he, she's like, no, no, we've paid for it. And it's all, he's like, no, no, no. This is going to be a pain in my ass. So she's like, we, you know, just let's wait. You know, if it doesn't work out, we can get one of those uppers. Uppers? I'm, I'm assuming she meant Uber. Oh. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so the girls and I'm talking and now I do the introduction and he's just shying away. And, and but she's trying to be gung-ho, the, the, his wife. And, and we're talking. The girls are lovely and they're very nice. And we all get on the cruiser and we go to the first stop. Well, by the second stop, Paul, the woman was like doing their hair and helping them out with their hair. And she was like mama being the aunt. Uh. And Paul, the plumber's name. He had become Uncle Polly, and they were doting on him, and they were kissing. They were putting on lipstick, and they were kissing him on the cheek, and he was like Big Daddy pimping, and he was, uh, and she was taking pictures, and he's like, send that, send one that one to Daryl, send that picture to Daryl. Daryl's gonna shit a brick, you know, <laughs> and uh, and he was having the most fun. So we finish up the tour, and now these are no no offense to Midwesterners, lovely people, very very lovely people. But they are sometimes a little ish on how to tip. Oh, I you know, see. They're a little shy tippers. Now, New Yorkers, Boston, Connecticut, those people just throw you money. They understand. You know, they get. As a tour guide, you want people to be visible with the money because then other people know you're, you know, oh, okay. we don't mind getting tipped. You can hold it over my head. I'll, I'll jump for it. You know, it's okay. That's how we, we make our living. But they were, she was being very discreet. So she comes up to me and she goes, you know, we had a wonderful day. If you don't mind, we, me and Paul would like to give you a little. And she does a little secret handshake thing. Oh. And then she says this to answer your question. This is my favorite moment since I've been a tour guide. She said, that was the most fun I've seen him have since we were young. Wow. And I'm like, that's that. That was my best tour guide moment. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, and you never know. They just, you know, they just had fun. Everybody gets along. A couple of beers helps. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, on that note, it, could you describe, I mean, it's not just a delicious cereal beverage with an amazing history. What is it about beer? Why your fascination with it? Because I think I, I, the word fascination is, is apt. Infatuation. Passionate. <laughs> uh, well, it's been my livelihood, my passion, and uh, a definition part of my body right now, whether I like it or not. Um, I keep some with me at all times. Now, beer is something people don't understand about beer. There's a lot of people who think uh, beer is a more of a blue-collar beverage, and it has been. But beer has something that no other beverage has, what I like to call the secret of beer. And again, I'll try to keep this brief. My friend Alex isn't here to take off his glasses when I start getting long-winded. That's our code. You know, like slowly remove his glasses. You know, if I'm like, shut the hell up. Um, <laughs> I don't have that luxury right now. But when you brew beer, you have uh, very the bittering hops and the sweetness of the malt. Uh, the bittering hops generally neutralize that sweetness. Now, by neutralize, it doesn't mean they go away. It just means it removes it from our palate range. So very quickly, our, everybody's palate range is roughly the same. Animals have different palate ranges, what you taste, what you don't. Our nose range is broader than our mouth range. But if you're doing it right, you're pouring the beer in your mouth. Well, our brain picks up on everything. So we have a very intense bitter and a very intense sweet that we don't pick up on. 
uh, because it's been neutralized. But your brain picks up on it, but it can't relay the message because we don't have the receptors. Well, this entertains your brain. It gives it something to do while you're drinking beer. It's like a puzzle. People have always had wondered for, since we can do brain scans, why are people's brains more active when they're drinking beer than any other beverage? Well, that's because your brain's continually trying to work out this puzzle. You're basically making your brain happy while you're drinking beer. So if you've ever been sitting around drinking beer, you know, what pondering, you know, let's say it's your sixth beer, Paul. It's a good pondering range. Right. And you think to yourself, why do I like this so much? Mm. It technically doesn't taste good. You know, that's not the point, you know, but why is it so gratifying? Well, that's why, because it's making your brain happy. Plus, the hops have an added element, being a member of the cannabis family, that elevate your mood that people usually attribute to alcohol. But no, you have an elevated mood that comes just from the hops. Mm. You know, wine can't do that. Sake can't do that. Whiskey can't do that. Tequila can't do that. Tequila tries. Uh, But uh, (laughs) only beer has that magic of making your brain happy without you being aware of it and giving you the added benefit of the hops. It is a, uh, it really is a magical beverage and it has a depth of character that no other beverage has. As you know something's going on with that beer, you just don't know what it is because we don't have the palate receptors. Have you ever gone on a t- kind of like a beer pilgrimage to visit a, a, a brewery or a certain place that had a historical significance or a, a, a famous part of beer history? Uh, got to do an opportunity with uh, Owen Ogletree back in Athens in Atlanta. Totally good dude, and he does these annual trips, uh, to, and he, he varies them up. This particular one happened to be um, a real L tour of England and a little scotch up in Scotland. And was able to go to uh, some very authentic real ale establishments. Uh, so is there the Yorkshire Dales. There was actually a really good show done from one of the bars we went to, the uh, Gateway to the Dales, the Yorkshire Dales. And it was very well done. Uh, it was about a, basically having a real ale contest and uh, driving around in, in a nice car. And uh, it, it was beautiful. But being able to go to some of the places where what I, uh, what I in, intrinsically value, going to a pub, and sitting down and talking to people. My father was that way. He would talk to anybody, but he didn't go to pubs. He didn't drink, really. He'd have a margarita at the golf club, but, you know, he, he didn't, um, he didn't, wasn't a pub person like mm-hmm. I am. But I like to sit down, sit next to someone and talk to them. You know, that's going away. Everybody sits there and looks at their phones now. And if you talk yeah. to someone next to you, there's like, oh, why are you talking to me? Why are you trying to sell me? Are you hitting on me? What are you doing? You know, it's just a negative. No, if you're at a bar, Talk to the people next to you. You'd be amazed how interesting. Now, some of them are a pain in the ass. You know, sure. But you can always get out of that situation. But, um, no, it is an intrinsically lovely thing. And that's one of those things you, if you get to go to England, I've not been to Ireland, but I've been to Scotland. One of the funny things when we were at the Yorkshire Dales was um, going and talking to some of the locals and realizing I didn't understand virtually a word they said. Technically, we're both speaking English. Right. But all I heard was, Ibbity, Ibbity, Ibbity. you know, I, I, I got nothing. But they were asking me while we, you know, what we were there. Oh, we're doing real L tours, you know, because they didn't see tourists at the place we were at. And we weren't tourists. We were there doing this real L tour that Owen had put together. And they, I replied, and then they start telling, you know, telling me a story, and I don't understand any of it. So I just learned to laugh when they laugh, look sad when they look sad, toast when they toast, and <laughs> back out of there slowly before I embarrass myself. 
Yeah. Well, both from your experiences being in pubs, and then also you have a job in which, as you said at the beginning, you have the opportunity to share a brew and a uh, a few words with different people. What mm. has it done for you? What What has it been like for you to connect with so many people? Well, I think deep down the life enrichment, the things you that make you happy at the end of the day are being productive. You know, if, you, if I just go out and drink beer and play golden tea all day, well, you know, if I worked hard five, six days in a row, okay, but you don't feel good at the end of the day. If you, and in my case, my work is literally, as I said earlier, take strangers out, talk to them about beer or history or both. But if you're productive during your day, whether that's financially productive or as my oldest daughter, Rania, told me um, not too long ago, she said I had emotional intelligence. If you can reach out and help other people, if you can talk to your friends, if you can get some people out of some, you know, I'm a very low drama person, but it can be your, whatever circle of influence, whatever relationship it is, if it's your friends, your family, or your business, if you can be productive, you know, that's the most gratifying thing. But just don't try to force it. You know, expect nothing, appreciate everything. Hmm. So, Kobe, tell us about the five P's. <laughs> five P's. That Paul, that came, uh, Paul can be the sixth P. You never know. Although you probably wouldn't want to be on this list. <laughs> but no, I, as a tour guide, reviews and tips are the two biggies. You know, the things that are very near and dear to our hearts. And that's what makes us dance, so to speak. Uh, and we do appreciate, we really do appreciate good reviews. Well, I've had some weird reviews. I had a lady once that said, well, I liked the stories, but I kept stopping to buy beer. Well, it turns out her husband had booked the tour, uh -huh. the history tour, and evidently didn't mention that it was a pub tour. Or uh, the, the girl the, uh, who reviewed on the bruise cruise that said, our driver keeps trying to take pictures and tell us stories. It's like, <laughs> no, I, I'm a tour guide, not a driver. You know, right, there's right. a big difference. Driver. But, uh, but reviews are big. But I had a, you know, I had a lady once that said, you know, you get some good, good structure and some good feedback. I also had a girl once, uh, who said that, uh, because I do mention the five P's, which for the record came from a reviews while I'm telling the story, I had a gentleman who said, uh, all of Kobe's stories, save for one, had one of the five P's in it. Pints, pubs, prostitutes, pirates, and politics. And I'm like, that's hilarious. You know, I, I, and that has become kind of my uh, mantra. And as I started to say earlier, I had a girl once who's like, he looked right at me when he said prostitute. I'm like, okay, probably did. Um, but now whenever I say prostitute, I either look at a guy because they don't mind or I just close my eyes and look at the ceiling. But it is funny what happens in reviews because you do learn a lot. Uh, they're not always fair, but sometimes they're brutally fair. You know, so I, I don't do stories while I'm walking for that reason. I will walk, turn around, stop, tell a story. Because the people at the back of the line, if they, if you hear, if they hear you talking, they're wondering what they're missing out on. Mm -hmm. So, And there's some slow walkers, as every tour guide knows. Right. It's like, hurry up! You know, the light's changing! <laughs> you know. So, uh, 
But yeah, don't ever talk while you're walking. Mm-hmm. You know, people will ask you questions and there's people get, you know, the, those that were at the front of the class back in school. Yeah. And they will ask you all these questions and you can't answer them when you're walking because right. you're just going to annoy the people, you know, further back the line. So the little things you do learn from reviews and I see. You know, the five P's. Pikes, pubs, prostitutes, pirates, and politics. And by politics, nothing after 1940. <laughs> That's safe. Yeah. Good. Well, something that you talked about the first time we met face-to-face, you were talking about how Charleston is... I've invited Paul for a beer or two to <clears throat> show prep. That That's right. That's right. I, I have never had, by the way, that much preparation which I appreciate, because I thought, here's a guy, he wants a good show, you know, and so I appreciate that, and I, it did go noticed by me, but Charleston has a unique geographic location. I remember a, a guy talking about Key West, Florida, and he was saying, look, everybody who's here, like, you have to try to get here, so there's not many people who are stuck. Charleston... You told me a very interesting fact, and I'm just hoping you can tell us a little bit about, geographically, the place, Charleston, South Carolina. I had a I had a private tour today. Normally don't do tour. Today's a Monday. I don't know when y'all are watching this. Today's a Monday. I'm normally off on Monday. But um, the man I respect the most in Charleston, not, not you, Paul, sorry, <laughs> but Giles Hollowell asked me if I could do a little private tour for some friends. I'm like, you know, it's Monday, but it'll give me, uh, it'll get the tongue loose for doing this uh, this evening. So, and they're from Maine. And Maine is interesting because there's a little island off the coast of Maine. And with that exception, this is the closest point in North America to Africa. As they say on Folly Beach, the edge of the world. And it doesn't make sense in most people's minds. Just like Charleston itself doesn't make sense mostly to guys because we face south instead of east. You know, the ocean is south of us. Myrtle Beach is, you know, east of us. Savannah is west of us. And that kind of screws with guys' sense of direction a little bit. But for a recessed area like Charleston to be closest to Africa, well, that's mostly about the shape of Africa. But if you look at your globe, you know, while you're out there watching or listening, you know, you look at it and you're like, damn, you know, Tour guide dude's right. You know, Charleston, South Carolina, basically, or our outer bank yard beach areas are the closest point in North America to Africa. A pilot told me that, actually. Hmm. He says that's one of the reasons that, you know, the slave trading from Western Africa and, the, you know, and, it, and the, the ports and the uh, one of the you know, many reasons we became the wealthiest city in America twice. The trade triangle to the West Indies back in the sailing ship era. Close is important. Yeah, you know, Virginia was three, you know, to five days further north. So Charleston became extremely wealthy because we were the closest to Africa and the West Indies. Interesting. Yeah, a unique geographical anomaly. You mentioned a moment ago Savannah, Savannah, Georgia. Would you ever or could you at all compare the two? They're right next Ooh. to each other. Charleston versus South or Savannah. Well, I named my oldest daughter Savannah, so I obviously love Savannah, and I always have. Also love Tybee. Love my Tybee friends out there. Becker, Chimney Guy, all those guys, just awesome guys. But the two cities are often compared. 
and people will compare them like sisters. Now, anyone who has a reasonable sense of responsibility, maturity, knows you never compare sisters. Right. Because if you compliment one, you immediately, that becomes an insult to the other one. Oh, I'll, you know, like your hair. The other sister hears her hair's, you know, tra- you, know it, you can't do it. But it is a good comparison for the two cities. Charleston's the older sister. We've been around significantly longer. Been married a few times, divorced a few times. We've been fabulously wealthy. We've been really broke. We still act like we're wealthy even when we're broke, by the way. <laughs> Just what we do. Uh, too poor to paint, too proud to whitewash. <laughs> but we're the older sister who's been through a lot, been wealthy, been broke, been through a lot of trauma, but doing pretty good these days, holding herself up pretty well, looking fine as an older woman. Savannah's that younger sister that got married, had kids, nothing bad ever really happened to her. Right. You know, now, no problem with that. It's, it's just a different type of uh, attitude. You know, Savannah is beautiful, genteel, historic, and Charleston is the obstinate daughter. Stubborn rich just won't listen. <laughs> they're just, they're, they're different. Hmm, interesting. Now, I always get a lot of emails or contacts about the lightning round. So I'm going to ask you some questions. Quick question. Now what? The, the what? The lightning round. The lightning round. I just, okay. I call it the lightning round. I don't know where I saw that or something or whatever. But by the way, folks, you can you can tweet at me, the Paul Leslie. You can go on Facebook at the Paul Leslie. Post on the Facebook page. You can comment about this interview. Also, <clears throat> Instagram at the Paul Leslie. But here are the lightning round. Quick question, and just the first thing that pops into your mind. Uh, just like you just. A lot of times people, when I do these, they're like, I'm afraid now. But here we go. No, I'm excited. <laughs> good, good. Okay. Excitement is you. good. I'm with you. All right. The best beer song. Best beer song. Uh, there's been several. Uh, uh, Billy Currington, pretty good at drinking beer. He does mention Bud Light. I've worked for Anheuser-Busch twice in my career, never had a Bud Light. But he also, uh, he, he kind of captures it a little bit. Uh, Tom T. Hall, um, I like beer. Oh, yeah. Um, those two, one of those two, flip a coin. Good, good. The first thing that pops into your mind when I say Budweiser. Uh, they call it Bud Heavy now because uh, that's become recently topical. Budweiser does a wonderful job. People dog on them too much. They're very proud of their heritage. They're proud of what they do. They consider themselves brewers. I have a lot of respect for the people at uh What's now AB, you know, InBev, but uh, for the Anheuser Busch, especially the old school guys, they uh, they consider themselves brewers of beer, and I respect that. Very good. I remember uh, I was at a, an outdoor music festival, and they only had Budweiser, and there was this guy, and he was enjoying his Budweiser, and this guy uh, it was kind of snarking on him uh, for drinking the only beer that was available, and I thought, how unfortunate. <laughs> That you would try to deprive this this other guy of, of this simple joy of drinking a cold <laughs> beer at a music festival. Anyways. No, there's trust me, there's beers I don't respect, as any of my friends could tell you. I'm not gonna tell you that on live. You, you won't know. tell me. No, no. I no. bet I could uh, guess. I don't I, thankfully I don't have enough money to get sued. You know, no <laughs> lawyer would ever take the case, you know, because they take me for everything I own, I you know, I'm out twenty bucks. 
But well, go ahead. I'll give you the flip side of that then. The <laughs> best beer ever, according to Colby Glass. Ah, that's Colby impossible. Glass. No, that's not. Um, well, the I'm, first one that pops into your mind, like... Okay. The- Subjectively, that's different for every person. Right. But and there's a... Uh, oh, close. All right. We have a little mantle behind us for those of us. Uh, video, you can see it. For people listening... There is a, uh, we're in a lovely historic place. There's a mantle with a large uh, water buffalo with a horns remarkably shaped like Paul's mustache, <laughs> which I find hilarious. But I put some beer bottles up there. There were some wine bottles earlier. One of those bottles, uh, not knowing you, Paul, you're going to ask that question, but uh, a remarkable uh, and a lovely coincidence there. If the Belgian beers, Trappist, you know, uh, Belgian beers are generally regarded as the world's best beers for a couple mm-hmm. of reasons. These are Trappist monasteries. They don't pay tax. They don't have to pay their employees. They put all their all their into ingredients. They have plenty of patience and plenty of time. And because they don't have the business restraints that a, a, a normal brewery has, they were able to produce what are generally regarded as the best beers in the world: so the doubles, the triples, the quads. Well, one of those, it's actually in the Netherlands, uh, as opposed to Belgium, but same culturally or similar enough. Uh, La Trappe, they have a, a quad that is barrel aged and they release them every year. Well, if the Belgian beers are like, you know, the, the church of beers, you know, it's like the, the, the most pious, the highest. And then the, you know, these Trappist beers are like the steeple of the church. You know, you have these Trappist, the very best, the highest point. But then on top of that steeple, there's, you know, there's like the cross, the very, very highest, the tippy top is the most, you know, that would be a barrel aged Trappist Belgian beer. Mm. And how can anyone, you know, even pretend to be, you know, higher than that? So, uh, now you can't find them anywhere and they're hard to find and they're expensive as hell, but. If you can find one, that's a special beer. When I say expensive, for beer, mm-hmm. you know, beer is wonderful because you can go out and buy the most expensive beer you can possibly get, and it might be five bucks a bottle. You know, a twenty pack or four pack for twenty bucks. Oh, that's expensive. Well, no, it's not. Mm-hmm. You know what you do? You go get yourself some nice glasses, some like some you know, proper glasses. Generally, a wine glass if you don't have a proper beer glass, and you can spend twenty dollars on a four pack of nice Belgian beer. Go home, get it at a decent temperature, not too cold, and maybe get some chocolate to go with it Mm. because you can get a really good chocolate bar for five, six bucks, and then you can be drinking the best beer in the world and eating the best chocolate in the world, and you're out 10 bucks. You know, that's awesome. What else can you do that with? You can't do that with wine. You can't do that with whiskey. You know, you can't do that. But beer, you can get the best beer in the world for five bucks a bottle. That's awesome. Come here. Yeah. Yeah. Cheers. You're keeping pace quite nicely, yes, I must say. Yes, I'm trying. What about mead? What do you think of mead? It takes a long time to make makes it, uh, to make it properly. Most people, well, not most. I take it back. A lot of uh, meaderies that get into making it, it, they find it hard to sell. You've got some good niche. Usually, if they sell it well, they have the farm, they have the uh, the bees. That you know, there's other reasons why it sells well. I enjoy it. I would prefer mead to wine for you know, generally. Uh, I can't drink white wine. I have an allergy. God knows how. Doesn't make it a lick of sense. Um, but I do. But thankfully, I don't really like white wine, so it doesn't matter. But mead is, is fun. It's interesting. I like it. But it's not 
it doesn't give you the same benefits as beer does. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't get the magic, you don't get the elevated mood or the depth of character. So, but it's more, it has more depth of character or interest than wine does. So, mm. and for all of you wine people, it just got horribly insulted. I apologize, but it is what <laughs> it is. Wine is both simpler and cheaper to make than beer. It just has an elevated status because of the great whites back in the 1800s. And to some people still does, but. An unearned status. Yes. <laughs> Kidding. I don't want to insult them again. Does fruit ever belong in beer? Oh, God, it would be so easy to say, hell no. Hell no. Uh, <laughs> but uh, no, it does. Like, there's Sometimes it works. I used to love a good German Hefeweizen with a little splash of Chambord, just a splash, just a tint, you know, just a tinge. As I would tell the bartender, um, enough to make a difference, not enough to charge me for. You know, that's the right amount. Mm. But a little Chambord on top of a real, when I say a German, not a craft German Hefeweizen, they're, they're not the same. A real German one, a Paulan or a, you know, something that has that clove-like spiciness. Because then that the raspberry of the Chambord, and it kind of has to be the Chambord too. The razzmatazz or some cheap-ass you know, equivalent doesn't really work. But that's kind of magical. Don't do too much, though. Just a little dollop, just a tinge. The wonderful uh, Belgian wits, a uh, wonderful man named Pierre Sellis that resurrected in a completely extinct beer style that had been wiped out by the Nazis in World War II and going basically just on memories of the older men around them. Uh, he was able to resurrect a beer style, the Belgian wits, uh, in the little village of Hugarden uh, in Belgium, and that it has orange rind uh, in it along with coriander, and it's a absolutely fabulous beer. And the style is duplicated by virtually every craft brewery in America and even the big boys with beers like Shock Top from Anheuser-Busch and you know, Blue Moon from Coors. And uh, thankfully, his daughter, Christine, down in Austin, Texas, and her daughter now are uh, carrying on his tradition. But he, he resurrected a beer style that had been completely dead, Catawba, here in Athens, uh, out of Asheville. But they do uh, their white zombie. And it's called White Zombie because it's a Belgian white, and it's a zombie because it you know, got resurrected from the dead. You know, that was an extinct beer style, but that has fruit in it. And, uh, and it's a world-class beer. Thank you, Pierre Arcelis. Thank you, Christine. Uh, so, now there's some exceptions, but for the most part, I like beer-flavored beer. You know, beer-flavored beer. Right. Yeah. What would you change in the beer industry? <laughs> oh, uh, the power. You know, if I was able to, you know, suddenly I'm like evil dick there. Oh, wow. All right. Uh, you know what, Paul? If I were able to change um, current, now I'm assuming you mean like current right now, 2022, mm-hmm. a beautiful day here in Charleston. You know what? I wish that there were some of these craft breweries. There are some. I wish more of them, better term, would do actual traditional styles of beer. Because it's so much more difficult to brew a beer too proper to style than it is just to brew a beer and see how it turns out, name it something, put it out there and say, that's what you meant to do. Hmm. You know, uh, you are an avid uh, lover of music and music history. And you've had a wonderful relationship for, you know, a generation or more with musicians. And there's a lot of places where beer and music kind of overlap. The really popular stuff's often not very good. And the really good stuff's often not very popular. Mm. But a true musician or a true beer enthusiast knows the difference. So knowing that even though this beer might be okay, it is not 
technically correct. You know, it is, um, uh, it didn't take that much skill. It's just well marketed and it's a dollar a pint cheaper than that one I really want. But I'm a, you know, a poor, a poor ass tour guide. So, um, thankfully they have quack here, which I really enjoy. But the, the one thing I would change is let's see how many brewers know their stuff and can make a true, a, a nice British pub bell with the biscuity malts, you know, and, and not too heavy, you know, you know, low on the hops, just a pleasant, easy to make beer. It's hard because if you make one mistake, it's off. You know, if you make it, if you serve it too cold, it's not right. You right. know, uh, I love the true, you know, the challenge of making it true to form. Uh, my good friend Alex, uh, he he always thinks German beers are better. I think Belgian beers are better. But to his point, the Germans are very good at making technically correct beers. I wish the American craft brewers would be more like the Germans. Hmm. Interesting. Now, this question, when I've asked people in Charleston, even when they're not on the record, they're like, ooh, don't ask me that. If someone has one night in Charleston or their last night, where do they need to go to eat? Oh, I'm going to get in trouble. You're yeah. right. People say things oh, like that. Oh, you can't do that to me. Like, no. um, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Oh, okay. Well, as much as I would love to go some obscure or only tour guides know about it or, or, or some pearl of wisdom, it's still an obvious answer. Hall's Chop House. Hall's. Hall, uh, Billy Hall, uh, the way they run that business when you have world-class food in a place that's been there and that, and where they're at on King street hadn't always been nice. It was run down for a while. They're their survivor, but they survived because they're frankly, they're fun. You know, it's, it, it's amusing and you enjoy yourself. You can laugh. It is a light atmosphere for a fine dining restaurant. That's not easy to pull off. You right. can be your red table your your white tablecloth and your red velvets and your, you know, you're being judged on which fork you use. And, you know, you have to be very, you know, yeah. If you're pretentious and you're all full of yourself and you want to have your ass kissed, you know, there's other places to go to. If you want to enjoy yourself and feel like you had a wonderful night out, nobody does that better than Halls. And they understand that. Food's going to be there with anybody. Better, in all fairness. Certainly not lower than anybody else, but the fact that they treat you like your family and they're genuinely glad that you're there, they're not faking it. Yeah. You know, and uh, believe me, I, you know, I don't get to go there. I can't afford halls, but, um, I've been there a few times, sit at the bar lunch, you know, cause I just love, I love the atmosphere. Husk uh, along those same lines. And frankly, um, Lewis barbecue here in town. Same thing. You can't get, there's certain things when you know that this can't get any better. Yeah. And so there's a few places and I don't do business with any of those places as you know, yeah. uh, Lewis, I used to with a previous entity, but that's how I found out about it. But no, there's some places that if you're going to do Charleston, you're going to go to one place that would have to be a place. Now you have to make that reservation four months in advance probably, but it is what it is. Or you know somebody. I don't know those people. Or if I do, I don't know about it. I will have to try. I, I, w- I want to eventually try every restaurant in Charleston. Oh, my God, you're going to be fat. <laughs> when, when, uh, people, when people ask me about moving, I always said the same thing. <laughs> I always said my biggest fear is getting fat because you can eat quite well in this town. 
Yeah, it's always been a drinking city, but it has become, uh, we have more James Beard Award winners, uh, basically the Oscars for food and beverage. We have more per capita than any city in America, yeah. more than New York, which is second. San Francisco's third, Chicago's fourth, little old Charleston. Yeah. Lots of great places to eat. Yeah. I will Absolutely. tell folks on my tour the four, five places they should not eat at, but right. I'm not going to say that. Yeah. Um, I wrote those yeah, down. I'll eat them you wrote them down. You know, He knows it. I know. Come take my tour. I'll tell you where not to go eat. <laughs> you have to go on the tour, folks. <laughs> if you could, Or buy me a beer. I'm, I'm cheap. Either way. If, speaking of beer, if you could have a beer with anyone alive, anyone alive, who would it be? And for those of you who thought that we had practiced these questions, we have not. Nope. So he is he is uh, throwing it out there. If I could drink a beer with any, uh, well, beer makes it important, and alive obviously is important. If I could, you know what? This is not ninety percent of your audience is not going to know who this guy is. Ten percent is going to say hell yeah. Hmm. Cody Canada. Cody Canada has written some songs, sang them in a way, had a I don't give a F attitude in a certain way. I love the fact that he never sold out, that he followed his heart, and that would be Family Man, just breaks so many molds. I think that guy would be fascinating. For all you Red Dirt music fans, you know who Cody Canada is. If you don't know who Cody Canada is, go to your Google machine and plug in Cross Canadian Ragweed. And listen to a few songs, and then you'll like, okay, tour guide dude was right. This guy kicks ass. <laughs> so, Cody Canada, if you're out there, someday I'd like to have a beer with you. Weird answer. You know, I was supposed to say somebody more famous, maybe, but that's probably the right answer. As long as it came from, from the truth. Yeah. What is the best thing about being Kobe Glass? It's a drama-free lifestyle for the most part. I, I Maybe too much. I, I have to start admitting, had a long talk with uh, one of my daughters you know, a couple months or uh, a couple weeks ago. Maybe I've gone too drama free, but I love, you know, what I, I have more fun working, Paul, than not working. Again, I get to take people out to bars, drink beer with them, tell them stories for a living. So I love to work. And when I'm not working, I, I, it's nice to, to not have a lot of, uh, and I have a lot of drama. I can help friends with drama, but normally it's not mine. Now, to a certain extent, I need a little bit more because it's avoidance. I thought about this about two years ago. My my uh, most recent girlfriend, when our relationship ended uh, amiably, but I realized, well, I can either get another girlfriend or I can drink beer and play golden tea whenever I want. <laughs> you know, and I'm 58 <laughs> at some point. Starts to say, you know, and I'm slightly ashamed to admit that, but it's not dishonest. Having the freedom to do whatever the hell I want when I wake up in the morning, it's like, okay, when do I have to be at work? Two uh, thirty. So prep, I would be there at two. All right, it's uh, you know, it's uh, pushing eight o'clock. Having some free time, you know, that that's a beautiful place to be, and. Now, the downside of that is, is I'm a broke-ass tour guide living, you know, but, and there's some entities that, you know, need some, be repaid some money, but it's getting better. Everything's getting better. COVID was a kick in the nuts 
for anyone who takes people that come in by cruise ship or airplane mm. that go out taking the bars for a living. So, you know, that was once, you know, we got this thing up and running, it was brutal. But now that things are returned to normal for the most part, uh, it's a really bright future, you know, thanks to um, beer, thanks to Charleston, and thanks to people like you, Paul. Thank you. Bless you. Well, my last question, I always like to end open-ended. Thank you to everyone out there who's watching or listening or reading or however they're experiencing this interview. We thank you. But, Kobe, what would you say, whether that person is in Milwaukee or also in Charleston or if they're in in Belgium or in, in Munich, Germany or wherever they might be, what would you say to them, totally open-ended, about anything? About anything? About anything. Expect nothing, appreciate everything. Raise your kids, spoil your grandkids. Because if you spoil your kids, you're going to raise your grandkids. Mm. And as I've often said, since somewhere in my 20s, just loving life, as always. Mm. And I won't say it if I don't mean it. But it is an utter appreciation of everything, everybody comes in your life is a gift. You know, I lost my, my wife, unfortunately, a few days after her 39th birthday. My daughters were nine and five. Mm. And I told them then, and I told myself, and it's not the easiest thing, but everybody that comes into your life is a gift. They come in all different shapes, sizes of packages. You appreciate your gifts. You don't look at other people's gifts and try to compare. It doesn't work that way. You look at your gifts and you say, thank you. If you appreciate your gifts, you're going to be a happy person. And I appreciate the gifts I have been given. And I am an inherently happy person. And I am very thankful for that. Put her there. Thank you. Now, real quick before we go, if somebody is thinking... I like this tour guide. And they're thinking, you know, by the way, Charleston is a great place to take a vacation. I probably vacationed here more than any place. Twice moved here. And finally, I was like, ah, cut out the, 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 yeah. So here I am. They're thinking, I want to take a tour with this guy and maybe even have a beer with him. What would you say? First part of that's easy. If you're going to take a tour in Charleston, little sign above my head. We'll, we'll try to put it on early in the video. Make sure you have a registered tour guide. Right. Registered tour guides are important. Uh, there's some silly ass lawsuit and there's some people out there that there's really, as far as I know, correct me if I'm wrong out there in the, uh, you know, the, the ethernet, but New Orleans, Williamsburg, Virginia, and Charleston are the only three cities in the United States where it's required to have one of these be a registered tour guide. These are the people who've studied. It's not easy. Make sure you have a registered tour guide. Palmetto Guild, even better. It's like fancy tour guide. But it means that we have studied. We know what we're talking about. You're not going to be getting a lot of made-up stuff. Only do business with the places that are that are our Charleston Visitor Center. They only deal with, you know, I stole this sign. I didn't steal it. I borrowed it. They, <laughs> they were nervous. They didn't know who I was. But I came and got the little sign. But the, the, that's important. Make sure you're dealing with a company that has registered guides. 
But as far as me personally and my businesses, the Charleston Bruce Cruise and with Charleston Culinary Tours doing the pub tour, which is my favorite tour because I get to drink on that tour. Uh, <laughs> they frown on that on the driving tours. <laughs> But uh, no, with the with the pub tour, they're wonderful tours. Uh, best way to see the city, really, uh, and to understand it and have fun. You know, anybody can do a history tour, but to do a history tour while you're having a few pints, you know, even more fun. And no, but Charleston Culinary Tours and Charleston Brews Cruise, respectively, and they link to each other. Giles Hollowell and his Charleston Culinary Tours. Giles, I tell him all the time, he should he should be mayor. You know, he's probably the uh, most liked guy in Charleston. And his tours are phenomenal. Uh, I'm blessed to, you know, let him, uh, or he lets me come and do my pub tour there. I'm, and I'm the only pub tour guy there. If I can't do the tour, they have to shut it down. Because mm. nobody else, I tried to teach a few people, and they're like, yeah, I can't do that. <laughs> you know, and it's like, the, you know, and, and thankfully I've been doing a lot of this stuff for over 30 years. But I don't realize sometimes how much it overwhelms other guides mm. when I do my pub tour thing. But the people have tried to, you know, uh, shadow the tour to learn it. Yeah, yeah, they can't. You know, it's it's not something anyone else can do. I, I found a perfect niche to do the historic pub tour with. Uh, do you remember the five P's? I'm gonna put Paul on the spot here for a moment. Okay. Paul, do you remember the five P's? It would be, and I don't have it in order, but I have. Again, not practice. I'm putting them on the spot. Pints. Yes. Pubs. Yes. Pirates. Yes. Prostitutes. Yes. And? Politics. But, but nothing after 1940. Ah, uh, very good. Very good. Very good. I uh, I did not think he would get that. He, I didn't either. <laughs> as always, uh, Paul Leslie impresses the audience. So I uh, hope you all enjoyed it. Thank you all for having me out here. Thank you, Paul, very much. Thank you again. It's been a pleasure. Until next time. Cheers. And to you. Thank you for stopping by today. If you enjoyed our program, consider telling a friend about it. The Paul Leslie Hour is made possible through people just like you. So you want to keep the show going, right? Go to thepaulleslie.com. That's thepaulleslie.com Click on Support the Show And thanks to everyone who contributes Performance of the intro music is courtesy of John Primerano The Entertainer Written by Scott Joplin End credit theme music is courtesy of John Primerano The traditional song Corina Corina Your announcer is Dan Gold Hey, that's me! The show is hosted and produced by Paul Leslie. And we'll see you next time on the Paul Leslie Hour.